Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in John chapter 19. Uh, so here we have the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus dies in this chapter. It's a long chapter as you can imagine. And uh, so we're going to have to do a lot of skipping in order to get, get through it. Uh, first verses, uh, actually the first verse has a lot of uh, lot in it, though it is a short verse. Uh, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Um, again, I don't want to spend a, a long time on all of the details, but um, to, to flog someone prior to a crucifixion would have been a very bloody and violent scene. So you would have um, the uh, Romans would use what they call the cat of nine tails, be a whip with uh, nine parts to it that would have uh, broken pieces of pottery, bone, and whatnot. And the idea would be as you struck, uh, it would rip apart the, the skin and, and anything else it, it can get. Uh, it's a very, very ugly scene. Uh, they would um, whip a person about 39 times. The law didn't allow you to go over 40. And so uh, 39 was a safe way in case, you know, someone's counting votes or something. Um, first, that's going to give me trouble. Verse 2, And the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with his hands. Pilate went out again and said, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So, so the first three verses are about the amount of punishment Pilate put on him both physical and psychological. So you not only have the whipping, but you also have the crown of thorns, very long uh, thorns. We don't have them this long in Kentucky, but in um, uh, Rome, uh, certainly they, they were much longer. Uh, you've seen examples of these, no doubt. We used to sell them. Uh, you could buy crowns of thorns. We used to sell them at the store and I worked at a Christian bookstore. Um, and then, but John wants to emphasize, as does Matthew. So we talked more about it when we looked at Matthew. So I don't want to spend forever on it. The, the um, impeccability of Jesus, that Jesus is innocent, though he is being punished for and will ultimately be executed for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, the biblical writers want the reader to know Jesus dies as an innocent man. Uh, again, this is a major emphasis of Matthew's gospel, uh, but we have Pilate and others making this declaration in this chapter. And so uh, when people are saying, no, we want him dead, we want him crucified, and they say, look, he claimed to be king, uh, this concerns Pilate, and so he has this interview, verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There's a lot going on here uh, that time won't allow us to, to explore in any detail. Uh, the question of uh, levels of sin, oftentimes this passage comes up. Judas committed the greater sin than, than Pilate, but there's there's... I don't want to chase that rabbit. One thing to note there is Jesus' view of suffering is rooted in the sovereignty and the providence of God. Um, that Pilate has been put in this place by God, primarily for this purpose. And that Jesus' suffering, uh, though unjust, is not in vain. Uh, there's a lot of application we can get from this singular verse um, uh, about suffering and, and other issues. Verse 12, From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So we see that though uh, Pilate wants to release Jesus, he, he feels stuck as a politician because he's got to win the next election. There's a lot of historical baggage going on here that um, uh, would be worth highlighting in detail. Uh, but, the, but the basics of it, we actually talked about this some last night in our uh, Bible study. 
the basics is that Pilate has done a lot of things to uh, frustrate and anger um, the people of Judea. Um, and so some of those things would be bringing icons of Caesar into the city. Um, and uh, he actually had several of the citizens killed uh, in the middle of a mob. He, he uh, disguised some of his soldiers. And uh, when a, a mob showed up at his palace, he gave the order for the soldiers just to kill whoever they could kill. Um, there's, there's also a mention of another event of a tower falling. Uh, in Luke's gospel, we looked at it when we went through Luke's gospel. So Pilate's not a popular guy, and he is basically two strikes on the count, one more, and he, he is out. It's essentially what's going to happen to Pilate anyways. Uh, but Pilate wants to keep his job. Now, all the governors would say that the absolute worst place to govern was Judea. Um, the Romans just could not get the Jews to um, follow along uh, with, with the Roman system. The Jews wanted to remain purely Jewish, and so it was a hotbed of, of violence, of, of protest, and everything else. Um, so we, we, we then lead to the cross. Pilate decides to have him executed. Uh, we have the soldiers dividing the garments among themselves. Um, and then we pick up verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Um, so, so there are three Marys right there. Now Mary is obviously a very popular name. Uh, we know this not just from the Bible but from other resources. Um, and we've actually collected all the known names we have at this time in Judea. And Mary is right up there at the top, if not the most popular, one of the most popular female names. Uh, Mary is the Greek for the Hebrew Miriam, the sister of Moses. So as you can imagine, it's a, it's a popular name. Um, so here we have three Marys. Um, look, only the greatest scholars can keep them all straight, right? And there's more than three. Uh, there's there's there's. Uh, plenty more. So who is who and all that sort of stuff. But you see there are three women at the feet of the, foot of the cross. The disciples are in hiding. Uh, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, it's probably the Apostle John. Uh, there, some suggest others, but a tradition says this is the, the Apostle John who never identifies himself in the gospel, um, but rather um, speaks in, in a third person. Um, but uh, so I think this is the writer here. Um, he said to his mother, "Woman, behold your son." He said to the disciple, "Behold your mother." From that, from that hour, the disciple took her in his own home. Uh, what we have here is um, uh, one of the the seven sayings. John has three of the seven, so he has nearly half of them. Uh, and this is the one that a lot of people struggle with. I did a, a sermon series. It was a Christmas sermon series a few years ago, I think maybe two years ago, during November and December, uh, where we looked at the uh, uh, the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And th this was a really difficult one to develop uh, and, and to uh, make application. Uh, but on, the, on just the exegetical side, we see here that Jesus is responsible for his mother. The likely reason, and I, I think the circumstantial evidence is very strong, that Joseph, Jesus's adoptive father, had died between uh, the ages of 12 and 30, when Jesus was between ages of 12 and 30. He shows up at age 12, right, at, at the temple. Uh, but by 30, he, he is just absent from the narrative. And by this point, it's very clear, Jesus has assumed responsibility for his mother. That would have been typical at this time, that the oldest son um, in that situation would have been responsible for the rest of 
his family. That may reveal why uh, Jesus' half-brothers are uh, not fans of Jesus in that he chooses to, to, to become this itinerant preacher, and they may have felt that he was letting the family down. I, I mean, I'm speculating here. But there is strong evidence that, that Joseph has, has since passed. Um, and so we see John uh, is given, now given this responsibility from Jesus, which would have been strange, uh, but I believe John is a cousin of Jesus. Uh, don't quote me on that. We just went through it in our Wednesday night study a few weeks ago, and we looked at the Apostle John. Well, that's the first saying we get in John. The second saying is in verse 28, uh, where he says, I thirst. Um, I've, I've preached on this a few times because this is one of my favorite of the last sayings because on the surface, it just it's just Jesus saying, look, I'm parched, right? Um, and and that, that's true. I do believe that that is going on here. And the other Gospels um, um, agree with that. Yet, I think within John's Gospel, there is more going on here. What you have is uh, a theme of water and a theme of drinking. And so we, we did this, I think, yesterday. We, we highlighted it. But um, go back to uh, turning water into wine, chapter 2. We can even go to chapter 1 with the baptism. Uh, when John says, I baptize you with water, he'll baptize you with the Spirit. Um, you, you can look at chapter 4 where Jesus speaks to the woman at the well and says, um, um, you know, give me something to drink. I'm thirsty. Um, and if you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. Chapter six, he he gives uh, not just uh, he says uh, after feeding the five thousand, uh, those who come to me will never hunger or thirst again, but will have eternal life. Um, this theme continues to be developed until here. What we have is Jesus uh, on the cross uh, as the Lamb. Um, remember, we we haven't forgotten those those four. Uh, L words, um, he is saying, I am thirsty. And what I think is happening here is uh, this theme of John that's, that's remained under the surface finds its climax in the cross. That Jesus, who is the one always giving water, uh, he, is, he, he is always quenching the thirst of those who are truly hungry and thirsty and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, having given of himself... Um, he, he is thirsty so that we don't have to be, right? So, so this is really the, the meaning of the cross. Christ gives us life so that we can have life. Jesus dies so that we may, may live. And then we get the, the third of John's sayings from the cross. That is in verse 30. Um, he receives the sour wine um, because he's thirsty. And he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his, his spirit. Um, now, this is, of course, a triumphant uh, proclamation, um, and um, it is finished as one word, tetelestai, um, and uh, it is really a summary of the gospel. It is finished. All of our sins, uh, all of our brokenness, uh, the, 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 the sting of death, the fangs of the, of the serpent, it is finished. You will never get that in religion. You will only get it in the gospel. Because on verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that he, they might be taken away. You can't take the bodies down on the Sabbath, that's work. So you gotta 
We've got to hurry this whole dying thing up, they're saying. But but the day of preparation is preparation for the Passover. So so in John's gospel, some will say there's there's contradiction and, and whatnot. Um, I, I think at the very least, in John's gospel, he's wanting the theme of Logos Life Light Lamb to find its climax here. Okay, So we're going to have darkness at the cross. Right? We're, we're, we're going to have um, the, the death of Jesus for the life of, of, of believers. Um, and, 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 and then we're going to get the lamb languages here. Here we see while the lambs, the Passover lambs, are, are being slaughtered in the temple and, and it's so bloody that blood would run through the street, what you have outside the camp is Christ, the Lamb of God, dying on behalf of the people. You remember what Caiaphas said, um, not realizing what he had said. It is better for one man to die than for us all to perish. So here in John's telling of the story, he wants you to see the Passover lambs for, for ritual purposes. Um, that's what blind people are doing. But those who truly see understand the true Lamb of God is here. So there is no Last Supper the scene, what you have is the theology established in chapter 6, and then you have the act of the last Passover here, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So verse 38, and to the end, I want to look at the burial of Jesus. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a new character. We're not given a lot of information about him, but he is one of those who saw the light. Uh, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, remember him, Nicodemus pops up three or four times in the book. Also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. That detail is very important to John. That Jesus, the light of the world, um, is, is approached to by one who is in the dark, in the dark. Now, Nicodemus isn't in the dark. He's in the sunniest part of the day. He has come into the light, to the light. Um, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Uh, so, so what you have is the Mary, the, 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 the woman, Lazarus' sister, she anoints Jesus in preparation for her burial. Nicodemus now does it for his burial. Um, verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the custom, burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. A couple things to mention here, and, and, and we'll be done for, for today. One, we have several eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So anyone who says Jesus survived would know better. Okay. They, they handled the body. They saw the wounds. It was very clear. So you have several people uh, declaring Jesus dead. The soldiers wouldn't break his leg. We skipped that part because he was already dead. Joseph and Nicodemus declare he is dead. The women, as we'll see in, in chapter 20 to, uh, tomorrow, they go to the tomb because they know he is dead. But what you also have is that you have witnesses of where Jesus is buried. And it's clearly a place recognizable because John says it is in a garden. Now, what a striking image. You have a garden amid a cemetery. One represents life, the other death. And if you know your Bible, and especially if you know the Gospel of John, who loves these themes, and he develops them subtly, that garden language should stick out to you. Remember, in John's Gospel, 
there is no garden of Gethsemane experience. I mean, he, he teaches, he does this high priestly prayer, but it's not developed. He saves the garden language for the burial. Why? Because man fell in a garden in Genesis chapter 3. So what you have is a place of life, in came death. And now what we get in chapter 19 and chapter 20 of the resurrection is, in the place of death, there is a garden where there is life. Jesus breaks the curse. Isn't that good news? It's good news. The sting of death is removed. And so when Mary and the other women come and they discover the tomb is empty, who do they find? One walking in the garden as God would do with Adam and Eve. Because he's Logos, he's life, he's light, he's lamb. What a fantastic story. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.